like book club meets letterbox meets greatest hits meets happy hour but all about tv every week three friends make and debate the case if a show is truly essential viewing listen for the hot takes and stay for the camaraderie i'm ezra i'm mallory i'm gina and this is the essentials this week we're talking about boardwalk empire the five season series period crime drama ran on hbo from 2010 to 2014 as always a general warning about spoilers we will be discussing almost everything now let's get into it Boardwalk Empire follows the birth and rise of organized crime at the dawn of Prohibition, focusing on Enoch Nucky Thompson, the man in charge of Atlantic City in 1920. The series comes from creator Terrence Winter of Sopranos fame and executive producer Martin Scorsese. Well, both Gina and I have seen all glorious five seasons of this show. Ezra, what did you think? Well, I started the show last week and I'm already done with season three so i think that says a lot about how i feel about this amazing show amazing so happy to hear that i've been watching like four to five episodes a night i it it feels unhealthy i can't help it (laughs) (laughs) that is a lot to watch in a night especially for a show like boardwalk empire because it's a very to me at least it's a very heavy show on the heavier side of things so I actually watched it as it was airing on HBO. Of course, I've got a backstory. Like, Boardwalk Empire is the, the first adult show that I watched by myself without, like, friends or family. Uh, and I started watching it when I moved to New York 11 years ago because it came out the same exact time. And I started watching it when I was going to grad school every night or every Sunday night when it was on. I would, like, watch Boardwalk Empire in real time with show and it's heavy show but it's an amazing show it's just very thrilling i agree with you it's it's very heavy and i should not be subjecting myself to so much boardwalk empire but i it i can't stop i just had to keep watching it was like do you want to watch the next episode and i was like "Mm, yeah okay (laughs) could not stop and i just I love Steve Buscemi. I'm sorry, Buscemi. And it's just, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I I agree with you. My favorite things about the show is obviously the actors are just, the entire cast is just stunning. Uh, I love Kelly McDonald. I love Michael Pitt. I love Michael Kenneth Williams. I love Steve Buscemi. Buscemi, I'll get it right. I, as I've said on many shows before, I'm like a history nerd, so I love that this show just has so much attention to detail in weaving in the fact with the fiction. Obviously, when I first started watching the show, I had Wikipedia next to me, like, looking everything up to learn that, like, Enoch Johnson is a real person, not Enoch Thompson. Very, like, nifty thing that uh, Terrence Winters does there. Obviously love seeing like young Al Capone, love seeing, just love seeing the history come to life and learning more about these characters. And then obviously the music, the music, the music. I think by now, judging by all the episodes that our listeners have listened to, they can tell that my history classes were not up to par 
So naturally, <laughs> the 1920s were very glamorized and ritzy and flapper dresses and glitter and champagne. And really, it's just a brutal part of American history. And I think the show captures that really well. Again, which is why I'm like, why did I watch so many episodes in the night? My mental well-being should be low right now, but it's it's not. I'm just like, woo, I can't wait to start season four. Yeah, it's like, you're like feed me history, feed me this knowledge, but it's yeah. also entertaining at the same time. I had Wikipedia open the whole time, and it was really great to, like, see the history intersect in the show. I was just like, ooh. That's real. Ooh, that person's real. Yeah. It was, it was really fun to read about all their counterparts. We've been talking for a bit. What about you, Gina? <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for helping create an opening for me. <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree with you all. The, the way that it presents history and mixes the fact with fiction is just so arresting and that you just get swept away. I also uh, really love love the main cast. I also I'm sucker for bad men doing bad things, and so the killer supporting cast that that the show has, literally and figuratively, I think is a murderer's row. You've got Patricia Arquette, you've got Michael Shannon, Stephen Graham, Michael Stuhlbarg, Shay Wiggum, Stephen Root, Jeffrey Wright, Jack Houston, Bobby Cannavale, Paul Sparks. It's so many white men. But it's so many white men, like, at the top of their game. And it makes me a little bit sad that, like, not all of these guys get great film roles. But I love that, like, this one TV show, like, brought them all together and gave them really great content to just chew over every episode. I also was really swept away by the production design and just, like, by the sheer amount of money that you could see on the screen in every episode. The way that they built out their world was just incredible. And I think that you, like, brought it up, but didn't, like, Scorsese... Because Scorsese directed uh, the pilot, and he spent an enormous sum on the pilot, right? Yes. In doing some of the research to prepare for this episode, I went through a lot of coverage of the show's premiere, and... The price tag for that pilot episode ranges anywhere from $15 million to $50 million. Like, it's not exactly clear how much money was put into this, but it's definitely, assuredly, one of the most expensive TV pilots ever made. And that quality really leaps off, and Scorsese really set the stage for how much we expected, like, after the pilot that that this show needed to be in order to keep its audience. And I also, I I did a lot of, like, reading up about Boardwalk Empire before it premiered, because I was, like, super... I used to follow, like, the HBO cycle religiously, like, looking up <laughs> every single new series that was coming out, who are the stars, like, what's the deal? And it was really funny how Paz de la Huerta was touted as, like, the next big thing, she was kind of like a New York club girl at that time in, like, the late aughts. Like, she wasn't really an actress, an actor, per se, in air quotes. She was just, like, a club girl who just liked to have a good time and happened to know, like, a few people in bands and stuff like that. And Scorsese and Terrence Winter decided to 
cast her in this role as Nucky's, like, first girlfriend. I don't even know if you would call her a girlfriend. But, man. And there was just a lot of, like, pop pieces that came out in Vanity Fair, which was ironic that you sent me that fucking <laughs> mall <laughs> cover uh, that was, like, written about Paz and how Paz was going to be the next it girl. And she just can't act. Like... She she can't act. She's not a good actor, and she just oh, the the Vanity Fair article was about Gretchen Mall in the late nineties. Yeah, but but, but both Gretchen Mall and Paz de la Huerta did share um, close associations with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, so maybe looking back, that could that's something that we can think about and and discuss. <laughs> like both subpar actors, both kind of rising to the top through their sexual sexualizing their bodies on like splashy Vanity Fair covers and profiles both have a relation to Harvey Weinstein coincidence I think not oh I actually love Oz she she was fantastic in Cider House Rules she plays her role really well I Cider House yeah also glow up when I saw her in Boardwalk I was like Pause. <laughs> <laughs> she did go through some rough times, I think, and so that was why she was eventually, I think, written off the show. Yeah. Her I do I do remember that hearing about that. Yeah, her history with Weinstein is uh it's dark. Oh boy. But I I when she left the show, I was really sad. I really liked her character and I thought she played it really well. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I really hope to see more of her in the future. I do. I just think that the show moved in a different direction, a better direction, in my opinion. When, when like the, oh, what am I trying to say? When Pause was out of the picture. Yeah, I, I do like that the show changes gears a lot. Like. One season is completely different from the other. Naturally, I mean, that's how TV shows work, but there's just something about, I've seen TV shows that just really cling to its past. And I feel like this one just, it crescendos and crescendos and crescendos and crescendos. And I'm pretty sure the fifth season is explosive. Yeah, well, it's like very interesting if you think about the show in the historical context. Wow, I sound like a history professor, but, uh, the fact that they're trying to talk about this prohibition period, they're basically condensing 13 years into five seasons. And at the end of the 13 years of prohibition, that's when organized crime actually begins officially in this country with the five families. So I find it like so fascinating. And it's true, like the tone changes in every season because we're getting closer and closer to these boardwalk mobs and these cute little skirmishes that are happening as they come closer and closer to like the Valentine's Day massacre, which spoiler alert, you do see in season five. Pretty sure I'm going to see more violence. I I think I can predict that accurately. <laughs> Let's talk Steve Buscemi. Oh my God. Oh man. <laughs> it is so wonderful to have this show as, such a showcase of his talents and his capabilities. I think I, I've 
a bunch of the initial framing for this show and the way that he became a leading man was was all about talking about how he's always the character actor and never the star. And and he himself has talked about it quite a bit that he was so surprised and so flattered to have been sort of like the this central vehicle around which the show was built. And I think that made me happy for him and happy for me to, to be able to watch him like really perform. And then it also makes me think a lot about who else on the sidelines who may not get their chance to shine necessarily. His story really reminded me also of Sandra O's oh. casting in Killing Eve and how mm. she initially also did not realize that the script was sent to her so that she could be the star. And so much love to to those character actors who can do and hopefully will do so much more. And I think that's what makes him such a good actor is that he's so humble. And that's one reason why I love him in this show. Like, I, I'm just going to say it. I don't find him sexy, but this show made me think that he was sexy because he's such a good actor. And the way that he plays Nucky Thompson with this, like, suaveness about him, it was like, okay, I'm melting for you, Steve Buscemi. I'm melting. And I just think that your breath probably stinks like cigarettes, but I'm melting for you. I disagree. I think he was sexy before this. <laughs> he is... He is divine. I love him so much. I I followed his career for as long as I can remember. I mean, I even to like the smallest cameos, I loved him in The Wedding Singer as the drunk brother at the wedding. <laughs> Obviously, he's great in Fargo, but to see him lead not just a whole cast, but a talented cast, it was so wonderful to watch yeah. and I agree I think one of the reasons why he's such an appealing human being is because he seems very humble which you can see in his cover with GQ which published a couple weeks ago he just casually talks about renting a room in his probably wonderful apartment both Ezra and I would like to live there yes <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need to LA he he should just stay here and rent the room to us. Yes, we'll take care of him, whatever he needs. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I will pick up his dinner. I will get his mail. I haven't read mm-hmm. the book yet. I know you sent it to me, but I haven't read it yet. He lives in New York still? In Brooklyn, in, in like the same place for like 30 years, it sounds like. And he he just seems like a total delight and a true New Yorker. I love him even more now. <laughs> <laughs> just when you think you couldn't love him more <laughs> uh, to, to what Ezra was saying about um, his on-screen presence I, I think like that that suaveness that, that Mallory you called out really well like the suits that, that he's in yeah. I, I think like that added a lot to it but then I think there's this very intelligent type of energy that that he has when he's on screen and many times he is smarter than everybody else in the room or he's like thinking three steps ahead and you see the show work to try to box him in or give him rivals 
so so that it's like actually exciting and there are true stakes to the conflicts that he's ha- having and i think it's also interesting too because by all accounts most of the cast most of the characters like they're all terrible people yeah and so this is very much almost like a the the anti-hero story where if you think of it in the larger context like this is a bad man like not yeah. only is it illegal to import and imbibe alcohol during this time but like they're also murdering and looting the local government taxes and things like that like like there's a lot that's wrong in this show but you can't help like hoping for the best for all of these people doing bad things which is why I I love Kelly McDonald uh, as Margaret and her transformation throughout the show, how she kind of starts very innocent and very much looking up to Steve Buscemi, Nucky Thompson as a savior. And you you start to see that, Ezra, where you're at in season three. She starts to realize that she he's not a savior and that she has the capacity to save herself especially when she realizes that Nucky will never be faithful to her and starts sleeping with Owen. I hate Owen, but that's another thing we can talk later about. But she decides to start sticking up for herself and starts like hiding money underneath the floorboards and, and really trying to embody this progressive woman of the 1920s. And I really love how this show like delves into the woman experience in the 1920s and also like the black experience with Michael Kenneth Williams of the 1920s. Because as you were saying, Ezra, the history books just think about the 20s as glitz and glamour. It's great Gatsby all over the place. But there were some ugly things happening in the 20s. Like just because Chalky White wants to own the club, Babette's, and be like a really fashionable rich black man, he still has to worry about the clan. Just because Margaret is going around with Nucky Thompson and she has the lap of luxury, like, she still has to use Lysol at one point as a contraceptive. <laughs> like, there are some ugly things that this show doesn't shy away from about the 1920s, and that's why I love the, like, interplay between the dark and the light. Like, the best supper club is the sparkly like Instagram, if you will, of the 1920s. And then everything that happened outside of the bets is reality. Yeah, I am like reading about this time in American history in high school. It's really easy to just go over like prohibition, but the show does a fantastic job of showing you the long-term effects of prohibition that you don't really think about when you're obviously reading about it in high school, but things got violent. Things were ugly. And the corruption, all of it, watching the show, I was just like, I'm going to read more about this time period because it's fascinating. Yeah, I love the 20s. I think it's like one of my favorite time periods in modern history. Yeah. I, I was obviously drawn to it for the wrong reasons. Glamour, but the show has made it <laughs> clear that that was not the case. Speaking of Margaret, her character arc, obviously I'm not finished with it, but I see glimmers of independent woman coming. But I mean, 
even in the small things she's done that I've seen so far, like hiding money for her own security, creating a class for women's education, for health, like for health reasons. Yeah. Her character arc kind of reminds me of Skylar from Breaking Bad. Like they yeah. both start out as, you know, quiet women by their man's side or, you know, like Skylar in the case is like a homemaker and they just kind of evolve. And it's really great to see that, especially since I don't think Kelly McDonald gets enough credit. She's one of my favorite actresses. I love her so much. Yeah. She, uh, she's fantastic in Gosford Park. I was just going to say that's my favorite role of hers outside of this. She's also, she does great voice work in Brave. Um, but <laughs> I'm a Disney princess. Film. <laughs> Brave. Michael Pitt. Like, I, I love Michael Pitt. I find Michael Pitt sexy. I found him sexy before Boardwalk Empire. Uh, I love <laughs> The Prisoners. I know it's a very problematic film, uh, from Bertolucci, but that was like Michael Pitt's and Eva Green's first film, and it's a very sexy movie. Highly recommend. If you're up for some weird NC-17 nonsense in the backdrop of the 1968 part. He's also very sexy in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I have not seen that. There is a My- great hand job scene. That's <laughs> <laughs> Michael Pitt is also duly terrifyingly extraordinary in Hannibal, I want to say the third, second season. Second season. No, I'm right. So we have that to look forward to. But I love how, like, Terrence Winter could have made Michael Pitt just, like, the star of this show, especially in season two when he's kind of, like, the boss, in air quotes. But we can we can we talk about that, that season two finale? Have you you've watched that, right, Ezra? Yep, I'm up to four. That was so shocking to me when I watched it that they would kill him. Massive spoiler alert. Sorry, people. (laughs) But that they would kill him. That Nucky would just do that. It was a stroke of genius to me. I wasn't shocked because I knew his character got killed off. I Uh, accidentally killed that for myself. But if I had to pretend I was watching it without knowing that, I I can see why. It was so shocking. I was so crushed and heartbroken. I actually have gone, or rather, like, I've, I've watched Boardwalk Empire technically, like, sort of twice through. I, I watched, like, seasons one to two and then stopped for, I think, like, over a year <laughs> between seasons two and three because I was just so heartbroken that Jimmy Darman died. Ben. And then picked it up from, from season three again and, and then and then rewatched the whole thing after that. But it I think it takes a lot of work to create that kind of character who um his absence creates such a vacuum effect on the rest of the cast and then the impact of his death has like such ripple effects throughout that they wove so seamlessly into their meld of historical and the fictitious. And so that was just really, really well done. I know this is a ripple effect that goes to season five, 
I've been told that, again, season five's ending is explosive. Yes. Which is why season five, season finale is essential viewing. (laughs) I know. I'm going in order. (laughs) Back up a little, though. Like, did any of you guys expect the random, like, incest plot line that that was revealed in, I think, like, episode 109 or, or like, at the end of season one? Uh, no. (laughs) I... I always sensed that something was not right because the way that he greets his mother is very uncomfortable. I thought he was cheating on Angela the moment Jillian jumped on him in her like risque getup. I was like, oh, he's, he's having an affair. Oh wait, that's his mother. I also <laughs> think that he was cheating on Angela too, but. I, it definitely was weird to me that they were so familiar, but I didn't think that they had a drunken night of incest. No way. God, I feel weird saying this, but when I when I finally saw it, I was like, I'm not surprised because clearly something's up with their relationship. Uh, this just makes me want to sing that song from season three. You'd be surprised. <laughs> the, soundtrack again. the soundtrack is so good. You can look it on Spotify. I did put it in our outline, but I did want to talk about how uncomfortable their relationship made me feel throughout the entire first two seasons. It was just, mm, I was like. Overwhelmingly, like, codependent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even the little details, like in the second season when she's side by side with Angela and she says, like, I used to kiss his Little wee-wee. Yeah. I forgot what she said, but I was like, okay. I think. And I, because of their bizarre relationship, I feel so bad for Angela, which is why her death was so heartbreaking to me, too. She's just third wheel, and it's weird. She should not be the third wheel. That that was very hard for me, that episode, especially because she's finally realizing that she, like, is in love with with that woman and it just really hurt me so much to see that episode. I love Angela. I forget what the actor's name is who plays her, but she's such a beautiful character and so well written and, and very well rounded for the short time that she was in the show. But, uh, so tragic, but going back to like Jimmy and Jillian are you, like, surprised, though? Because she had him at 13. She kind of thinks of him as a doll, not really a son, is the vibe that I got. Well, that's the other thing. That's the complex part of all of this. Her her views on sexuality are skewed because, because of that. Oh, my gosh. I want you to keep watching. I want you to keep watching. So no, I, I know I know why she had him. She was She was raped by the Commodore. At 13. Um, yeah. That's all I know. It's something that I was able to pick up on, especially when um, Nucky says he just pointed and the rest was understood. Yeah. But, but I'm, I want you to keep watching. I wish. I, I'm not stopping. I put in so much effort to get to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jillian Darmody, as much as I, I hate her character, I think she's a very complex character. And I think Gretchen Mole played that part really well, considering her career has been lackluster. 
<laughs> yes, that's one way to to put it. But I think another one of my favorite characters and also one of my favorite episodes uh, in season two, episode five, Gimcrack and Bunkum, uh, Richard. I love Richard so much as a character. Again, I didn't prepare well. I forget the actor's name who plays Jack Richard. Houston. What's his name? Jack Houston, part of the legendary Houston family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I I love his character, and I particularly love that episode because there's no surprise when Terrence Winter does Sopranos that he likes to do parallels to that. And that episode is a direct parallel to uh, the episode in Sopranos, The Pine Barrens, when Christopher and Polly get lost in the woods trying to, like, kill somebody. And I just loved how Richard is on this mission, this journey to kill himself, but at the end of it, he finds himself who he really is, and he's not defined by his injuries or his masks. And oh, they're so poetic, and I love him so much. Mallory, I think you'll also love this other connection to between The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire. Um, the director... Oh, Ezra knows this. <laughs> the director of that episode of The Sopranos was none other than our boy, Steve Buscemi. His what? first professional directing job. I actually didn't know that. Oh, I love that even more. I think he's directed think- some episodes of 30 Rock, too. <laughs> and I'm not 100% sure, but I think Boardwalk came into his career right around the time where he was thinking about giving up acting and just focusing on directing exclusively. But then because Boardwalk was received so overwhelmingly positively, he decided to like recommit himself to continuing to act. And so, yeah, another reason to love this show so that we can have more Steve Buscemi in our lives. Oh my gosh. What are some of your favorite episodes, Gina? Oh man. Okay. So I am also a big fan of season two and the season two finale, I think is, is just such a critical episode, um, in the entire arc of the show. I feel like the show in some ways can be divided into sort of like the Jimmy era and the post Jimmy era. And so in, in the finale where Nucky is somewhat forced by circumstance, to execute Jimmy like there's no way that in order to maintain his power that he cannot let Jimmy go and it really gets into the complicated father-son dynamics that are prevalent throughout the show and is the sort of like er relationship against which all older male figure and younger male son figure that dynamic is compared to. And so it, and I also think it is, I also think Jimmy's death is arguably the critical tragedy. Some ways I feel like Jimmy's death is the tragic emotional climax that the series um, after season two spends the rest of itself coming to grips with. But yeah, so season two with Jillian unable to cope with the death of Jimmy which leads perfectly into Bobby Cannavale. Who is my favorite, absolute favorite, whether he's 
being funny or being nasty. Um, there's one scene, I, I forget which episode, but he's, he's in New York and he's just surrounded by all of these Italian women and he is like a, like a grumpy teddy bear in the middle of all of these very loudmouthed Italian women. And then the next scene, he's like shooting up or, or laying arson to different buildings. And so I feel like he shows all dimensions, all very deranged dimensions that are very delightful. Having seen his other work first, it was <laughs> it was wild to see him in this role because I've never seen him like this before. Yeah, you've only seen him like in Ant-Man, right? In Ant-Man, in I, Tanya, he was in a brief cameo in Mrs. America. He was fantastic in this. He was psychotic. Have you seen Vinyl? I have not. <laughs> Which is uh, psychotic in that. Yeah, I think that this show, I have to do some more research, but I want to say that he got that role because of how psychotic he was in this show. Because he plays a yeah. very similar, crazy character who has anger management issues in Vinyl. I, uh, I have a list of people who I want to win an Oscar in the future, who I hope to see win an Oscar someday, and he's he's on that list. Well, he got an Emmy for his performance uh, this season, so... Right. He's getting close. He's getting closer to that he got. Go, Bobby! Go, Bobby, go! <laughs> I, I can't get over. I think you wrote about this too, Gina. Uh, episode 12 of season 3, Mark Gates' hands. His dick is he is killing everything in his path. What what a scene! I can't. I just have it in my like mind's eye right now, just staring at it. Uh, what the is opening it? sequence is fantastic. Yeah, I love how, especially with this particular show, almost every episode reminds you why. Mm-hmm it's on HBO or, or at least like why it's on subscription cable because there is always exceptional cursing. There is always incredible sex and there is always like heart stopping, absolute thrilling violence in the, <laughs> especially in episode 312 with there is just buckets of fake blood everywhere uh, when they were shooting that hallway scene because there are, I feel like it was very much sort of like a spiritual precursor to the Red Wedding with just how brutal the literal cutdowns of these gangsters were. Yeah, what is HBO and slitting throats? Like, so many throats are slit. Yeah, well, this show came out actually before Game of Thrones, so it kind of, like, paved the way for these, like, massive, bloody, violent period pieces. But I also find it ironic that this show came out the same year as my other favorite period drama, Downton Abbey. (laughs) (laughs) Two very different vibes. Yeah, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. They could not be more different, uh, except that, like, the production values are both the same and the attention to historical accuracy are also both the same. And they also both take place in the same time period. So if you're feeling really nerdy and, like, super into history, you can watch Downton Abbey and Boardwalk Empire at the same time and alternate episodes based on years to see 
how life in England was very different in the twenties compared to life here in America. <laughs> you kind of get that when Nucky and Owen go over to Ireland and they're just kind of like laughing at how quaint we are with our prohibition. For me, so there's two aspects of Boardwalk Empire as a show that I think make it truly, truly like one of those TV shows that's essential viewing. Um, the first one is all about the money. Um, Mallory mentioned this earlier about how Boardwalk came out before Game of Thrones. I think it came out before Game of Thrones by like a year or two. Yeah. And so while HBO did have shows like Carnival and Rome that were also very um, excessively budgeted, Boardwalk Empire stood out and was different from those in that right from the beginning, there was so much in the world and in the storytelling that, like, you knew it could be sustained beyond two seasons. And and it did go beyond two seasons, on, unlike those other two shows. And it was so dense and so rich and that it succeeded despite being, like, so outrageously expensive and also that it wasn't a, a contemporary drama. It was like a historical drama. It was so nerdy at times. It really showed that if you gave TV viewers that much to, to chew on and to savor, that like the people would show up and the, you know, like the nerdery that comes out with Game of Thrones fans is, is also a reflection of how, um, the TV networks learned and then leaned into that aspect of really investing into some, some big blockbuster TV series. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> okay. This the second part. I'm going to try not to be like as nerdy, but it's even nerdier. Um, okay. So, so the second part that I really love about Boardwalk Empire, and this might be a bit of a stretch, but I feel like it is very much a contemporary adaptation of Faust and the interconnected cyclical tragedy of abuse, of ex exploitation and violence between the Thompsons and the Darmides is really um, at the emotional core of the series. And then um uh, but in a lot of ways, the historical setting and the crime driven plot machinations are really just sort of dressing for the singularly universal story of a man driven by his desires and his demons, like Nucky Thompson is, to strive for wealth and power, for security and for standing, but at really incredible cost to himself and to others. And the show does, especially in season five, explore the psychic toll of his life of crime and accumulated weight of those decisions upon um, his, his own like self-worth and self-perception. This is also admittedly like my favorite kind of story. And so I think there are just like references throughout the show that I, I think like liken it even more to the story of Faust. Kelly McDonald's character is even named Margaret after, um, Faust's, uh, infamous, famous lover. And 
as with any variation of the the Faustian bargain, it ultimately asks us us as the audience to really interrogate um, if if like we could make those bargains and if we could put ourselves in Nucky Thompson's shoes, would we make those same trades? I don't think that's a stretch at all. Because as you're sitting here and, and discussing that, it's all clicking to me, especially season five, because like the bargain is made. And I love how this show retroactively through each season, like the bargain is made at the end. In the fifth season, we see the bargain made at the beginning of his life. And then each season before that shows the consequences of that Faustian bargain. So I don't think it's a stretch at all. I think it's a smart take. And now my mind is just like blown apart with that take. <laughs> and I want to rewatch the show again now with that context. So I kind of did my deeper dive well before. So I don't know if I want to like add anything to it because I'm still kind of like, I kind of want to let in this recording what you just said kind of sit because that. <laughs> I think I have a deeper dive to contribute, even though I'm still in the midst of watching it. Maybe this isn't a deeper dive, but just me talking about my favorite character. And I think that's Chalky White. Um, Yeah, it's my favorite character as well. Yeah, I've said this a bunch in our group messages, and I've also just texted Gina this. I find the dynamic between Chalky White and his family fascinating. He is, I think, one of my favorite characters of all time on TV. What the show does really well is it presents us with a story that pop culture doesn't really like to explore that often. Like, here is a successful black man, and his family reflects that. You know, they dress in these beautiful gowns, they wear they wear jewelry, and they have duck for dinner. And that scene is just so well written in that he struggles with his identity and the identity of his family in that he comes from a background, you know, he's, he clearly grew up poor and his family reaps the benefits of his wealth. And to see him just be broken by the fact that, you know, he's the man of the house. And despite his upbringing, he didn't want duck for dinner. And the family is just fighting with him on this. It was just such a wild scene to watch because it's not something that I see a lot in TV and I love the show for exploring that. I really want you to get to season four because I actually read this in my deep dive notes. We can talk about it. Seasons four and five really show the evolution of Margaret and Chalky as, as characters, especially season four when it really delves into family dynamics with the Chalky, with Chalky's family, you get to learn a lot more about, his past, you get to learn a lot more about his daughter Mabel and his son and his wife. And he has a lot of crises of, he has a lot of conflicts with himself as he tries to figure out who he is as a black person in, uh, in this world in Atlantic City, a wealthy black person who grew up very poor, but he doesn't feel like he's truly man enough for his family. And they explore that so beautifully in season four with the character of Daughter. Daughter is a singer, as you'll see, uh, for the Babette Supper Club because Chalky retains ownership of the club after the events of season three. And 
daughter embodies kind of a redemption for Chalky and that he thinks that he can be a better man through her because he thinks that he's failed his family through his life of crime and the fact that he hasn't been able to better himself to live up to his wife's standards, especially because he's, and the show does this so beautifully, discusses colorism and that Chalky is a very dark skinned man and his wife is very light skinned, which immediately gives him more cred and more upper mobility in the black society of Atlantic City because he has a beautiful family around him. And Daughter is this character that really morally challenges him. And it's just, season four is great. I don't want to say anything else because if I do, I'm going to ruin the season for you. But season four is a very heavy, chalky white season. And I love that the show delves into that. And then season five is like a reaction to everything that Chalky does wrong in season four. I'm so excited. Every time he's on screen, I'm just like, ooh, now it's getting really good. And like, I loved uh, Michael Shannon, or Michael Williams King, Michael King Williams. Well, I'll get the names right someday. A lot of Michaels. But I <laughs> love him so much from The Wire, so... To see him in this show in like a very similar violent role, but with more depth, I would say, than in The Wire, uh, was just really smart on, on Terrence Winter's behalf and just really, really great storytelling, really great character studies. I've said this so many times. I love a good character study and, and Chalky White is the perfect character study, in my opinion. So I'm really happy to hear you say that he's your favorite character from the show because he's mine sorry Steve Buscemi <laughs> I I actually like him a lot more than Steve Buscemi's character because I feel like the, the title character can lose its way a lot not that the show does that but there have been a lot of scenes where I feel like Chalky White definitely outshines Nucky Tom oh, 100% he totally like overacts and it's great it's fantastic, and I'm so excited to see what happens to him in season four and season five. Yeah. Especially when you bring in Jeffrey Wright, who is also one of my favorite underappreciated actors. I think that this show actually made him more appreciated just based on what he does in season four. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he is terrifying in this show. And very much sort of like an about face, because I knew him, mo- I knew Jeffrey Wright mostly from um, having seen him in the HBO's Angels in America. And so that that was just a completely different kind of character. And, and I loved how well he was able to do both. I also, speaking of Michael K. Williams, the first time I saw him acting was in HBO's limited series The Night Of, where he also plays somewhat like a, a criminal. But man, he stole that show too. And in very few scenes, he just ran away with your attention and your heart and your mind. I want him to win an Oscar too. I think he's good. I think he will. I think he will. He's very discerning when it comes to his roles that he chooses. Honestly, it it shows. He picks really great roles. I wish more actors did that it would save them a lot of rotten scores on rotten tomato <laughs> i really appreciate an actor that's very careful i look forward to what he does next oh. 
I feel like we're going to need to re- like do another look back episode after you finish uh, the show. Because the <laughs> is just all chalky all the time, and it's so good. Well, we we spoke about our favorite character. What character is the worst? And I, this is such an interesting question because they're all bad people. But who is the worst? Oh, this one's hard. I I want to say that like Gretchen, uh, or Gretchen Mall and Jillian, uh, the character she plays. Wow. And then they're like, nah, don't mind that. I want to say that Jillian is the worst character of the series just because she made me angry consistently every single season, every single storyline that she has just made me so upset because if she wasn't such a horrible person, a lot of the things that happened in this show wouldn't have happened. Not saying that what Nucky ultimately does to her in her life is in any way, shape her fault. And I know she's dealing with a lot of trauma and she's, doing things to kind of make amends for the trauma that she feels. But, man, she makes some horrible decisions that have repercussions in many, many characters throughout this show. From all the seasons that I've watched, I think I have to agree just because, yes, her actions ultimately lead to Jimmy's death because she pushes him and pushes him to take over the kingdom. And watching her in each episode just made me angry. I was like, shut up. Shut up, Jillian. I also feel like the writers, to a certain extent, stopped trying so hard to make her um, empathetic. Or or maybe maybe Gretchen Maul just wasn't able to imbue the character with the kind of sympathy that the other actors were able to give to their characters. I agree that she sort of deteriorates as, as somebody that you can really care for. And towards like by, by the end of the series, I found her to be a very brittle character. And there was so many other beautiful performances to look at. And so sorry, Gretchen, but yeah. And that's, it's crazy because there's so many gangsters in the show that do despicable things. And yet we, I think we're all in agreement that she's like the worst. We don't mean to hate on like one of the few ladies. But I know. I don't want to tear yeah. her. I don't want to come off like I'm tearing down Gretchen Mall or uh, her character or Pazla de la Huerta for, for example. But I just think that like, Short end of the stick, that's for sure. Yeah, I think Gina. Yeah. Like, you can tell that she's slowly deteriorating. On the other hand, I I really loved how some of the background characters um, evolved and over the course of the five seasons would come in and out of the foreground from the background. And so to see... Al Capone, Stephen Graham's rise um, from the very first episode was a pure delight, especially since, man, like, his accent work is incredible. Yeah. Uh, you, you would not be able to, like, like, I was very surprised to find out that he was from from England um, and is part Jamaican. <laughs> no way. Uh, he's a quarter Jamaican. I yeah. love 
I love, um, I forget their names, but the two actors who played Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. Uh, um, Lansky as, as Lucky Luciano. Yeah. I my favorite of the, the young gangsters, as we'll call them. Lucky Luciano yeah. is the most stereotypically Italian <laughs> gangster. Except for his groundbreaking decision to cross like ethnic lines to to have um, a partnership with Meyer Lansky and yeah. the like Jewish gangsters, like what an innovation! And it's really interesting because you can also think about this show uh, in a separate like parallel line as the rise of Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky because they ultimately became the winners of this battle with Enoch Johnson in real life. They ultimately survived and lived long lives to kind of instruct younger generations in the ways of mafia living. So I kind of love that the show also shows that, especially when you get to season five, (laughs) just showing like how they kind of outsmart everyone in the older generations and become these really smart, intelligent and just, frankly, badass gangsters. If we're talking about our favorite supporting characters, I have to say that I think Jack Houston really shines in this show. Oh! Richard! Again, one of my favorite characters, too. He's one of my favorites. And he's just... He's sexy, even with the mask. He's just... He's (laughs) And I... I love him so much, especially with Tommy. It's so great. He has, he's also such a rich, um, companion, uh, in his relationship with Jimmy Darmody and how they, um, process together their post-traumatic stress, uh, from, from the war. And I think we continue to have a Darth of that kind of representation, um, on screen of the of the long-term impact of, like, such violence um, in war. And so I really appreciated how the show took a lot of time to show um, the the psychic effects of war in addition to the physical effects. Yeah, true. I'm adding one more. Okay. Mike Bannon plays the guy <laughs> this close to cracking very well again. He does this role so well. He just has a face for it. And when he takes that iron and presses it into his co-worker's face, I was just like, well, he's going down a road he's not coming back from. Yeah, he has such a transformation in this show. Yeah. I love it. His character arc is really entertaining. And it's so ironic, too, because... He, he he just keeps on getting in his own way. Yeah. I, I think like if if like literally if he had had better self-control, like he he would have been the winner. It's just that like the way that he controlled himself was just so sort of like tight and neurotic that. Yeah. The tragedy of, of his um, his life was his own. It was interesting to learn about uh, what Swedish gangsters or, or like. Seeds in the Midwest. Yeah, it was. (laughs) I think we can agree that this is essential viewing. Yeah, I want to go on to final judgments. (laughs) 
hell. I'm not even done with the show, and I love it. Again, I've been averaging four to five episodes a night, so that says plenty. And I've said it before, the show is definitely essential. It's one of a handful of period dramas that I love so much, uh, and it's just really groundbreaking. Essential viewing. Watch it all. (laughs) And I think Boardwalk is also a stellar example of what can happen when you pull together like great writers, great producers, great actors, and and great crews. And it it really shows the heights that storytelling on television can achieve when you have all that perfect combination. So if you have to choose episodes to watch, I would say episode 101. Boardwalk Empire, episode 212, To the Lost, and episode 508, El Dorado. And if you need some more additional viewing, episode 205, Game Crack and Bunkum, and episode 312, Margate Sands. But watch it all. Watch it all. And that wraps up another episode of The Essentials. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. 